Hey, butches. Wagwan, what's going on? Wait, what? Wagwan? You've never heard of Wagwan before? No. I've been watching a lot of uh, shit. <laughs> not, not millennial, I've been watching, Gen Z. Uh, Gen Z, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I've been watching a lot of um, this this ch- this Vice channel on YouTube called Noisy. has a lot of documentaries about grime in like, different parts of the UK. And that's uh, apparently that's the greeting over there. So it, it just stuck. Wagwan? Wagwan. I think it's it's like, what's going on? But said in a, maybe a heavier accent or something? I mean, sounds kind of Caribbean. Wagwan. Oh, that too. Did, yeah. did anyone say that when you were in the Bahamas? I didn't understand what anyone was saying when I was in the Bahamas. <laughs> what do you mean? I don't understand the accent. Like, I'm, I mean... No offense to anyone from the Bahamas, but like the accent, the English is just, it's so thick that I, I mean, I can decipher pretty much any accent except that one. Interesting. There's slang. Like I, I, I'm like seeing people talk on like videos in, in videos. It's, it's been hard to pick up like the specific slang that they say because they do like shorten words, make them longer. And like, yeah, it gets, it gets interesting. I was, I was in the lobby and this guy just, you know, he looks local, walks up to me. He's like, bye, bye. What kia? What kia? Bye. I'm like, what? Interesting. And then, uh, you know, the the other, the lady who works here saw that I was completely confused. And then she said, no, no, no. And the guy walked away and I asked her, what did he say? And she says, boy, do you work here? Oh, what? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It was, it, but it, they speak really, really fast. So he just came up to me. He's like, bye, bye. What? Yeah. What? Yeah. I'm like, I'm oh, like, huh? yeah. So, I mean, that's, yeah. I see how you can get confused by that. But, um, but how's 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 uh how's your week been? Uh, you know, brink of World War Three. Yeah, crypto market in the toilet. Very true. Yeah. So nothing. By nothing way, special. I, to- no, not really. But I, I put my so I've been going around on Twitter and like you know those uh, uh d- drop your address whatever kind of tweets. So oh, I yeah. drop my um my ETH address uh-huh. just to see what I get. And every now and again, now and again, I check my my wallet, and they send me like the most random crap. Interesting. What what do they send? Um. Hold on, I'll show you. So one is like this weird, uh, like, oops, that's not it. Oops, oops, oops. What I do? There. It is. Okay. So one is this like like weird. Uh, it looks like a, I don't know what it is. It's like a head with wings. It's called a dew dragon. And then D O O dragon, and then there's uh, this this thing called pixel lemons. Somebody sent me a pixelated <laughs> lemon wearing like this colorful visor thing, and then okay. this I don't know what it is. It looks like a World of Warcraft thing or some. I don't. I don't. I mean, I don't play those games. Yeah. See, they call, it definitely called, looks like a World of Warcraft game, like character. Yeah. It's called Shaman Number Four, huh. which I believe is related to Lou Bega's Mambo Number Five. Yes, exactly. But this just looks like a screenshot from the game that somebody NFT'd and then sent me. Yeah, I don't think that's is that legal? <laughs> can you can you do that? I, I have no idea. I just I splash my ETH address everywhere and I just get the weirdest stuff. And I got these two that are actually mine. The, oh, those the are Arabian cool. Yeah, Arabian CryptoPunks on yeah, uh yeah. OpenSea. So I, I was those using are, one as my profile pretty. photo for a while, but for some reason, uh Twitter still doesn't verify um uh, Polygon uh, NFTs yet. Oh, so 
I'm I'm using the the ETH NFT, the Dirty Devil. Ah, uh, yeah, as yeah. as my uh, profile photo. Smart, smart. Now, hey, next time you buy NFTs, you know what you should use? What? NFT guard. We're not sponsored by, but I, you know, it would no. cool, right? <laughs> but you interned for them, and I own yeah. them. So yeah, <laughs> I, I don't own so at least them. I can... I'm a teeny tiny teeny investor. Um, oh yeah, so at least we can do. Right. Um, no, but yeah, that sounds like a typical. I was going to say, but before we got into that NFT uh, tangent, like it sounds like a typical 2020 week. I guess. Yeah, NFT world war. Uh, yeah. yeah. Markets suck. Inflation rampant. True. I mean, on my yeah. part, it's been pretty much the same. It's it's a typical like pandemic founders week. You know, a couple of in person events with COVID scares. Uh, um, really, burnout. Yeah, there, there's a lot of like nice events actually that I that I, I went to. So there's one on Tuesday. Um, it's run by Plug and Play, and you just get to meet founders and professors and investors of like all different walks of life in the in the Plug and Play network. So that was very nice. Built a lot of contacts there. Um, the interesting one that I'd like to say is this Wednesday actually. So um, Wednesday, this this past Wednesday, I went to um, an event called the LAEDC Annual Economic Forecast. So sounds exciting off the get go, but basically, I was say, what is that it is, electronic dance? <laughs> you would look very out of place there. It's like oh, Hagrid at a rave. <laughs> hey, I saw Shaq at a rave once. I think that's it was a YouTube video. Like I wasn't at the rave, but um, I have be seen the guy in the corner on the phone playing <laughs> on, on the weather app, like Mom Candy Crush. Me up. <laughs> <laughs> it's like. Trying to get I'm my card to go noises. through, so I can. <laughs> but um, no, so this this wasn't a this wasn't a, a dance festival, unfortunately. Um, it was um, pretty much it's 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 like an event where LA based like business owners, CEOs, investors, and higher ups of trade associations and nonprofits kind of meet to talk about the future of the LA and California economy. Ah, uh, the Illuminati. To your point, yes, I've heard them. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So it was my first Illuminati event. Really look forward to it. Um, as expected, though, I stuck out like a sore thumb. So, you know, this wasn't really a rave, but at the same time, imagine a founder, specifically me, having to like dig through caves of hoodies to find the one formal looking thing that fit and then kind of squeezing into it and like driving to downtown LA at 7 a.m. to talk to business execs. I mean, it's it's it was not it was not the the I wasn't it looks like Chewbacca trying to squeeze into a bikini. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I was, I was like one flex or one exhale away from being in a mankini from Borat, you know, but uh, basically at that event, there was a couple of like breakout sessions and uh, one of the breakout sessions actually included an investor, an advisor of ours. Um, So Alex Rubalcava, he's a founder of Stage VP and investor in Abstract. And then uh, Dr. David Choi from LMU. So they were basically on this panel with um, a person from like Microsoft's business development in, La- in the Los Angeles area. And the topic was uh, innovation in a recovering economy. So like how students, founders and workers in general um, kind of should be taught to adapt to the new way of things as COVID becomes a thing of the past. Um, granted, COVID really isn't a thing of the past. It's still going around, but like yeah. people are getting tired of it and starting to live with it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um so one of the interesting things that I think Alex mentioned um, was basically the fact that founders at many stages of his portfolio companies, uh, granted, like Alex is an awesome investor. He's got 
you know, anywhere from three people in a garage to unicorns in his portfolio. And uh, he, he's explaining how a lot of founders in his portfolio have to deal with massive, massive, kind of had a um, massive shifts in like. Okay, Tyson. The- <laughs> massive. Um, it was massive. But um, massive fifth. Um, but massive. God damn, I said again. Massive shifts in in their industries and like surroundings caused by COVID. And these are things that include pricing and like go-to-market strategies, marketing, hiring, fundraising. Um, it kind of stuck out to me a little bit when I heard him talk about founders needing to get through COVID. And I'm sure you have your your own like connections and stories of founders who've been through COVID and have had their business like hit the fa- like shit at their business hit the fan because of COVID. Mm-hmm. But it stuck out to me because it's it's something that I've really been blind to since we started Abstract. So you know, we incorporated in late January of 2020, and we haven't really felt what it was like running an in-person company, like in an office, running interviews in person, having on-sites, meeting with customers in person and walking them through our product. All of that sounds very, very foreign to us, uh, simply because the minute we incorporated, the minute we started building the product or we pivoted to the product that we were building right now, um, it's all been zoom and only only up until recently has it been a couple of coffees that we grabbed with salespeople, maybe candidates who are in, in the la area so you know after i had that I, I i kind of got the idea of what i think we should talk about for the next hour basically which is i wanted to do a little bit of a deep dive for anyone out there interested in getting into the startup scene uh regardless of where you're at to see how things have changed since you the listener has have, have been bit by the startup bug Right. You mean, um, pre and post COVID, everything just flipped on its head as far as startups are concerned. Everything from like the way teams function to how you hire to whether or not a VC would laugh you out of the office for not having a physical location. Um, and then notoriously, the insane valuations that we saw 2020, 2021. Um, yeah, it's just a different world. It really is. And, and, I, and I think the, the different world from the founder's perspective is like quite literally everything so so all not only all the processes that i mentioned shortly like shortly ago but um internal changes external changes everything about how you run your company and how you represent it when you go to different events and when you sell to to customers that's all changed quite a bit in a, in a very very surprising way so to, to keep things a little organized i guess we can start with you know the, the these two different types of changes so internal changes and external changes meaning things that are now different within the company versus outside the company. Um, I think, you know, a disclaimer again, before before this kind of comes across as advice or, or expert insight, because I'm a chocolate fuck that doesn't really know anything. Yes, we're um, both stupid. We're both, we're both very stupid. Um, you're a little less stupid than me, though, because you have a Harvard degree somewhere. <laughs> um, I stole it, but yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, I... I I, I should like NFT my Loyola Marymount degree. Do you think that's legal or possible? <laughs> like mint it? Probably. I mean, I yeah. NFT'd the cat's ass. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Miss miss that. Is she like toothless now? She had like one teeth, one tooth. The time no, she's, she still has her teeth. Okay. Still uh, really trying hard to lose another one in a fight, but she hasn't. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The only cat that has a bed here but prefers to sleep outside. Yeah. That's 
I think that will probably sell. She's camping. CryptoPunk. She's camping. <laughs> glamping. She's glamping. That's what she's doing. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so so my, my role at Abstract is basically CTO. So CTO doesn't really go around talking to investors and doing all that type of stuff outside. So the, the way I like to joke about it is we're pretty much in the dark cave of engineering. So we're just there building stuff. Shit goes wrong, fix it, keep on building stuff. So my insight to, to how things have changed has definitely been you know, talking to other CTOs who have been around before COVID, but kind of seeing how things are no longer the same or things operate differently now that we're, you know, completely remote. And now there's, you know, um, things are completely remote. Things are way more virtual than they used to be and just how to build and maintain a team with that. So I think, you know, to, to solidify that a little bit, I think the most obvious change post COVID is that remote work in engineering teams or in technical teams specifically is either an option or the new norm. So Zoom turned into a rocket ship of a company, newer quote unquote virtual office companies like Remotion, uh, which is a tool that we used to use quite a bit. Uh, and the By the way, we should, we should mention up. Zoom has not been super hot since it became a rocket ship of a company, but yeah. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah, no, yeah. Zoom, Zoom has been um, has been has been falling a little since since people started going back to normal. But yeah. um but you know, on March 2020, it was the company to have money in basically. Um, so, so all these different like virtual office co-working, virtual co-working space companies started springing up just to make remote work feel a little familiar. And the largest realization that I had here is simply that founders thought that they were saving a ton of, um, they were saving a ton on office costs because they were like, great, we don't have to pay for rent and not everyone has to move to the same location, which if it's a city must be very expensive and for a hub, a hub, like in a tech hub. And that means that rent prices are going to be increasing, which means costs of living are going to be increasing. Um, but they quickly realized that those same costs aren't being saved as much as they are being spent on culture. Because when your team is yep. scattered across the country or the world, just it, it's just as costly. Because the one biggest thing that I noticed, and this is what I noticed when I was actually back in Kuwait and everything that I had to do was over Zoom, was Zoom fatigue. Uh, Zoom fatigue amplified stress and emotions. And when you lose the opportunity to have water cooler conversations with people where good ideas or big issues come up, um, shit tends to kind of brew internally until it just explodes over some call, basically. Um, Human beings are not built to function this way. I mean, not at all. you know, all, what, in, in the last like, what, one year of human work that have become the norm to kind of be sitting alone in the darkness yelling at your MacBook? <laughs> this is not how people True. work. And I, I honestly feel bad for people who first entered the labor force doing this because what a miserable work experience. I mean, I'll give you an example. So I started out in investment banking and investment banking, like everyone tells you, it's just, it's world war one, you know, like it's the same emotional torment, you know, crying under the desk was the same as crying in the trench, mm -hmm. but you know, there was the camaraderie of the other people who were with it, who were with you down there in the trenches. And you don't get that functioning on zoom and, and you just kind of get siloed. You're in solitary confinement, being driven crazy by your work. And I can't imagine what would push someone out of work so early in their professional career, more than just being a, you know, a Zoom employee without even, like you can't even just like casually talk about the game last night with the guy sitting next to you kind of thing. The whole thing exactly. is just, uh, it, it's a perverse, perver it's a perverse uh, method of getting a job done. It's just, it's weird. It's not a historical norm, and it's obvious that people are kind of pushing back on it a little bit. But it's not always, you know, bad news.
True. Exactly. Like there's always the, the, you know, one of the biggest things when I talk to people who now work remote is um, especially people with families, they can get to be there around their families a little bit more, especially if they're expecting, you know, a child or something on the way. Um, But even more importantly, there's a lot of people that care about their surroundings when they work. Um, Not saying that it's a unique thing, but um, like people care about, you know, having a, their own bathroom nearby, having their pet around, having music playing in the background, like just having spinning pants up. be optional. Yes, pretty much. Exactly. Having, by the way, I optional. really, I really, really love the fact that I have my own bathroom when yes. I work remote. I mean, I, it's just, it's so, cause you got to work like a hundred years, any other place of business to get the executive bathroom, but here I have it all the time. Yeah. Also, I can brush my teeth in it, which is great. True. It's a great way to kind of prep for meetings or stuff. Yeah. So like I said, it's not, it's not all bad news. Yeah. I think, I think for employees like they, yeah, they want to be in their own surroundings. So it's awesome sometimes. And even when we first started, it was great. Cause like now my entire business or at least my role in the business is run on my laptop. So I could just be anywhere I want. It's kind of awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the very interesting trap that founders fall into though with that is they micromanage. So I don't know if you remember this, remember this, like, but mid 2020, when the first like wave of the pandemic or of COVID was coming across, um, a lot of things, basically a, a lot of like these scary stories came up of, um, employees had to have their cameras on the entire day, or they needed to have their screens recorded and monitored to see if they're actually spending time working yeah, or key loggers. Um, yeah, key loggers were very, very, very big and very problematic as like managers got a bit more paranoid that people are still sticking to that nine to five schedule that they used to before yeah. the pandemic. Um, but I think that the the benefit of that, not of the keyloggers and all that shit, but the, the benefit of everyone now starting remote work is, um, and this is something I've, 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 you know, kind of spoken to a couple of founders about, but trust has, has kind of been bumped up a little as a core value for most startups, which is very, very nice because instead of going, well, um, I need to make sure that you're working and I need to make sure that from nine to five in this time zone, you are doing what you need to do. And I'm going to check in on you and record your screen and all that. Yeah. Um, By the way, that, that did not start with COVID. That did not start with remote work. They're just like importing the toxicity mm-hmm. of the workplace and putting it in your house. Yeah. Yeah. So, exactly. I mean, I, I don't understand. Like if I was hiring someone for $150,000 to, you know, engineer software for me and I feel the need to stand over him like a slaver, I mean, it's just, it just it's it's sense. just not going to work. These are the super high turnover areas. These are the the super high turnover companies um, where people trash the company on the way out on open door. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. And I think the to to put a real world example to it, I think Glassdoor, uh, not open not, door. Yeah, Glassdoor, Glassdoor, Glassdoor indeed. Yeah. All those fun ones. Um, but I remember um, what was it called? Um, uh, what's that one massive company? Theranos. Theranos used to, you know, when I was reading Bad Blood, I used to, I used to read about, there's this one section in the book where John Carrier describes basically how uh, Sonny Balwani used to key log and track the the monitors of everyone. And the minute someone went to something that, was, that wasn't work related, um, they used to like, I think either fire them on the spot or cut their pay or something like that. It was borderline abusive. Like it was, it was pretty, you know, my, micromanaging was definitely like, the standard at, at, at a lot of companies like that. So, and that was like the nicest thing they did there, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. And now, and now that trust is a bit more, you know, say like if, if there was a task that we were kind of going after, um, 
I'd, I'd, I'd map, we'd like basically hop on a zoom call, map it all out on a document and then just send it out. And that's it. Like, that's what we needed to work on. And I trust that I trusted that whoever was on the other end of the, the receiving end of that document, um, whether it was like one of our engineers or anything like that would just execute it effectively because I mean, they already went through an intensive hiring process. So like, why do they need to sit around and like earn the trust of the manager and everything? It's just, you know, defaulting to trust and and, and just maintaining that for the time they're, they're around basically. Um, but I do think there is a downside to that from, from just a general business's perspective. Um, well, well, not a downside, but this is actually one of the shifts that, that, that Alex talks about in that panel, um, which is from an employee's perspective, when you quit a job or when you switch jobs, or when you're in between jobs, um, instead of packing up all your things in a box and kind of moving across the entire country to start a new job, you literally just mail in your laptop and receive another one later in the week. And then you give them your bank account and that's it. Like you still have payments coming in. You're still in your own place. So yep. what people have said as a side effect to that is that employment cycles or how long employees stay at companies are now more along the lines of six months to a year instead of the three to five years we saw before the pandemic. And it's much more resourceful or like resource intensive to keep employees around as opposed to then. So biggest, biggest example, and this is something that, you know, when, when we started hiring, um, we did as well, but, you know, hopping on LinkedIn, looking at people who are in other jobs and like poaching, basically poaching has been a very common um, approach in, in hiring people right now. So it's it's been as common or as promising for senior employees um, as as just cold outreach used to be when when you used to be early on like early on before the pandemic because well, a lot of these practices now, are also born of the fact that it's almost impossible to get talent now because of I mean a multitude of issues not I mean yeah. not the least of which it being literally impossible to get a visa for or, or it was for about eighteen months. And, mm-hmm. you know, most uh, engineers in the States aren't U.S. born even like, you know, the U.S. is exactly. surviving on importing engineering talent from around the world on H-1B programs yeah. and O-1 programs. And none of those were being processed for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that that's caused. And, and by the way, that was happening for the first time in U.S. history, U.S. immigration history it was happening at the exact same time where demand for technology products had gone through the roof mm-hmm. and uh, everybody everywhere was hiring. Yeah. So it caused a really, you know, weird ripple effect in the labor market for STEM majors and for, you know, mm-hmm. software engineers specifically. Uh, and we still haven't recovered from it, by the way. So mm-hmm. all of this really plays into the cultural aspects as well. For example, uh, some of the more aggressive poaching practices have suddenly become, you know, a little more acceptable, even though that exact same practice pre-pandemic would have had you blackballed as like a, a toxic person in the labor force. Exactly. Yeah. So, so what basically that resulted in is if you're even, if, if you're an engineer that shows a shred of promise, or if you're a senior employee at a company, yeah. um, you just need to log on in LinkedIn once a day to get bombarded by new offers, multiplying salaries, multiplying equity offers. And um, you don't need to move. It's, it's very less, it, it's less risky right now to accept the position because first of all, you know, you have the leverage because you're in demand. And second of all, um, there's not much that needs to change physically in your life to go take that offer. It's just a couple of clicks and, and, and a letter of resignation. That's it. You starting your new job the next day. Um, but, you know, because of that, pretty much what you have to do as a manager 
is you know you're needing to deal with this new new pandemic era obstacle of building um, a strong relationship with all of your employees in a, in a virtual or remote setting. So my realization, at least, uh, dealing with what we've been dealing with at Abstract, is that you can only do that for so long until you realize the need for in-person interactions, which kind of justifies the need to spend a little on airplanes, hotels, get-togethers. Um, granted, I'm not saying these are an expense or these are boring or a bad thing. They're actually fun as hell. I, I you know, we, we were kind of lucky enough for a lot of the engineers we have in our team are actually very you know sociable and just generally awesome, awesome people. So it goes against the founder's perspective that no offices save costs because you still need to see them in person. And if you want to, if you want people who are just as passionate about your mission, um, they're, you know, keeping them on zoom is, is the worst thing you could do. Like you got to go see them. You, you have to go meet up with them in person, have the whole team get together. Um, but it, you know, the, that, that's, that's basically what I've noticed was the biggest change internally, at least, um, looking at my perspective of, of, of things of, um, the way you manage your team and the way you kind of need to put yourself in each of your team members shoes to kind of understand where they're coming from or what they may be going through because they're also experiencing ma massive shifts as well um, is, is, is just this new added sort of maybe layer of warmth and empathy that you need to have as a manager or as a direct report to a lot yeah. of these people. But, but I mean, time and time again, even before the pandemic um, engineering teams have shown that, they can execute just as effectively yeah. in remote settings. So Look, yeah. re remote work, I think so far has been a net positive, even though there are some very clear shortcomings, you know what remote work right. or w what my theory is um, as to what uh, emotion or what memory um, of a period of life that remote work tends to bring to people. Mm -hmm. It's, it, it kind of gives you the freedom of college. In the sense that you still have work to do, but nobody micromanaged your absolute minute-to-minute -minute, uh, activities. So for most people, for like most of humanity in the developed world, prior to college, every moment of your life is micromanaged uh, and scheduled by your parents, and if not your parents, but then by somebody at your school, your teacher, your whatever. You don't you you don't have the ability to just like hey kick back at a coffee shop for an hour. That doesn't happen up until you go to college and you get a taste of that freedom of you know the, the sense that you still have responsibilities but you still have the freedom to manage hour to hour how you want to spend your day and then again from again most of humanity in the developed world of above a certain socioeconomic class as soon as you graduate you go right back to not having a second of your time to yourself because every single moment 9 to 5 is managed by a boss think about it like you know you have one additional degree of freedom in the sense that you don't need to ask a teacher to go take a pee uh, if you're working someplace, you can just go up and get up and go to the bathroom, but you can't leave that place at work without, you know, some kind of permission from your boss because you're walking away from your shift or whatever it is. So you lose that freedom again. So for most people, the only time they really had that kind of freedom, you know, aside from retirement is, is True. college. Yeah. So being able to go back uh, to that sort of a setup where you can kind of wake up, you know, a little later than, than you otherwise would. And, and you can skip the commute and, uh, uh, nobody's really controlling what you look like because you're working at home and controlling, you know, and enforcing a dress code. So that sense of freedom, I think, is is what people loved about remote work, at least at the outset. And it also helped, you know, kind of dispel the, uh, you know, the, the depressing vibes of the pandemic and the early days of the pandemic and the, you know, lack of certainty and all that. But, True. you know, doing away with the long commutes and having the ability to have lunch with 
you know, your spouse, your family, um, even though you're again, going back to that situation where you're alone in a room yelling at a MacBook, kind of like we're doing right now, right? It, it balances yeah. out and it kind of tips the scale in favor of, Hey, maybe this is, you know, more favorable setup for me. Um, but yeah, like you're saying, it does come, it come, it comes back, comes with its, uh, its shortcomings, but, um, I, I do think it was a net positive. Yeah, I do think so too. I, th- I think the, the, it's, it's a net positive because people kind of got that freedom back and kind of understood that, okay, a, a nine to five doesn't work with me directly, but I'm still able to, how, like, what's, what's the right word for this? I'm still able to execute and be as productive as possible without sticking to a nine to five, without dealing with a commute, without any of that stuff, pretty much. Um, I think that's actually a realization that I had as a personal story where, you know, before the pandemic, while well, I was in college, of course, but I was just very used to just always being on, always needing to be outside of the house working. And and, yep. and if I wasn't working at, at a, on a Saturday at 8 a.m., I wasn't doing anything right. And, you know, that kind of led to, to you know, not, not really sticking to the typical like engineering <laughs> experience at college of just labs, 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 sleep and more labs. I would like to remind you um, that very early in the pandemic, while you were doing all your you know lab work crap, I was the one frying chicken. Yeah. Lunch. <laughs> yes. And I was, I was working on, uh, what was it? That one core class, the piano class. And right. I was, and I, I, I got frustrated. My... You punched the piano, <laughs> which, which gave you I found, I found all the, the final takes of my videos. <laughs> and, uh, I still remember how hard you laughed after that. It still makes you laugh like crazy. <laughs> after the class was done you just kind of casually left the piano in a box by the trash room said free piano i still remember putting in parentheses slightly used (laughs) you were using the piano the same way rocky was using the meat (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of true Oh. oh man that's that's what you get when you when you take a counter a, a, a guy who grew up playing Counter Strike and just give him a piano and tell him to play complex. complex it was the shit. first real tricep workout of your life. <laughs> that's, that's kind of true. <laughs> oh, you put man. on a pound of muscle punching a piano. I, th- I really think I did. Yeah, yeah. I should have gone pro after that. Um, yeah. and by the way, if you don't know Mo outside of the show, he's usually like the chillest person in the world. <laughs> like you could stab him, you could stab him, and he would be like, "Oh, that wasn't very nice." <laughs> and like to see him punching a piano, I can't imagine how frustrated he was. Like again, you can oh. slap him, and he would go like, "Oh, that's 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 not very nice." <laughs> it's think, impossible it to get a back. rise out of him. Yeah, because I, I think this goes back to like even baseball too. I, I was I used to when I get frustrated with myself, I get very physical for some reason. And like it's it's not I can't direct that to people, but it's just you know, when I strike out and I went back to the dugout, like I threw my helmet around and, and did the whole like Ortiz bash the phone in <laughs> and like it just it just yeah, I don't know. Uh that hasn't happened now because because you know code's kind of different, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't punch the keyboard now because it would cost you six thousand dollars or whatever you paid for that thing <laughs> exactly 
exactly no it would cost me six thousand dollars and then um there's no break so i i need to kind of go back to working instead of when i was punching that piano i had to leave and like we ate tacos and black beans and watched ozark on the tv yeah yeah so i'm like i'm prepping tacos in the kitchen and you're beating that piano like it owes you money yeah exactly (laughs) we we do that and then and then both of us sit down like or bloated asses on the couch just going <laughs> just go, no okay. more black beans in the food <laughs> no more black beans in the food and then we'll watch one more episode and then we'll clean the next thing you know it's like 2 a.m we're both like oh shit <laughs> go to cvs get the tums yeah and then i come back with diet coke <laughs> yeah i forgot the tums diet coke and candy and it's like where's the tums you idiot <laughs> Oh, uh, 2020 was a fever dream. Um, oh, man, fuck 2020. Yeah, that sucked. I slept Started. on a couch for six months. Yeah, I, I bet that messed up your back quite a bit, too. It wrecked my back. Oh, yeah. Because I, I slept on that couch. We still have that couch, by the way. I slept oh. on it for a night, and it was it was, it was bad. Um, but, uh, all right, back to, back to post-pandemic recovering economies i guess um so yeah i, I mean the higher really, iq discussions yes yes exactly the degeneracy over um but but yeah i mean for looking at it from the internal perspective i mean that's the main thing you need to do culture building and how it's not really a a cost saver because you still need to spend a lot to see people use tools that keep people in touch and do all that um but I think externally now, and this is this is based off of like, you know, the internal experience I've had as a CTO, but as a co-founder, there's still a couple of times where I needed to talk to people and seeing the way us co-founders kind of interact with customers and even the probability that a customer would eventually end up paying has drastically changed. So, because I remember talking to a friend who was an intern at a startup and he used to tell me that the founders quite literally drove out of the office every day to company HQs in their area, demoing the product in real life and signing physical deals um, and building physical relationships as well. So in abstract history, I think we've only met, I think maybe it was like one of our customers in person, everything else was, the, was either an email or a Zoom call. And that's granted because we're based in Los Angeles and most of our customers are in Sacramento dealing with the California legislature and all that stuff. But um, I think from a trust perspective, customers are way more reluctant to part ways with cash if they've just been on a handful of calls with the founder. And we've actually have that, like we've had that as well with different like dev shops and services that we've talked to. We've hopped on a call with them maybe once and it's like, I, I don't know if that gives me the full image of that person. And it, it's not only, it's only until we actually meet them in person or grab a coffee where I go, like, I'm a bit more comfortable doing that. Um, they just want to get so- catfished by a SaaS company. <laughs> catfished yeah how you know it looks really good on paper and then you meet them and it's ugly <laughs> oh i bet you, you probably have a lot of stories with that as a as a vc right of getting catfished no yeah, catfished thanks. dick <laughs> maybe um but uh but yeah so so basically like it's it's something all investors can attest to while looking at their portfolio companies of like yeah. now basically going you know this customer no longer can no longer spend on essential soft can only spend on essential software so like now you can't do any of that basically um 
And I've noticed that people are likely to agree or join something if it's in person because it gives whatever you're offering a face to it. And and the funny thing about that is this is actually one of the reasons we're in the middle of a very, very big cloud migration right now. And that's why after this call, I'm going to go back into my dark cave and wrap that migration up because um, the entire pandemic, our previous providers uh, only, you know, I, I only had a generic email to talk to. Only until recently or like late into 2020 did I have a email or did I have a person which was a third party, which like worked through and didn't wasn't really associated with the original providers, which was just a pain generally. So, you know, I've only met the new providers that were actually migrating over to for just, Lord knows, maybe a couple of months at this point, like met them in Q3, Q4, 2021. And I've been to more networking events than I can count. I've been to one of their houses and I've met a ridiculous amount of founders, investors, and and just like general solutions architects that have that have helped us out quite a bit. And I think it's been it's been very, very helpful from that end. But I can't imagine much- anything more horrifying as a sales call than you showing up at someone's house. <laughs> Why? What what's what, what would be wrong with that? <laughs> I mean some like seven foot bearded <laughs> Middle Eastern militia man looking guy. It's a nice company you have. Be shame something happened to it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I definitely see the optics of it. It could definitely be very, very scary. But I mean, once you know, you you kind of mentioned this too. I'm I'm kind of a a, a panda bear in 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 real life. So once they kind of pick up on that, then it's 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 all right from that end. Um but um get getting on with with the rest of the the rest of the specific point of the external um aspect of this massive shift pretty much like non all non-technical aspects of a company deal with external things so like sales marketing not really people officer hr but all have changed and have needed to shift their strategies to account for the fact that people are doing things online now so i kind of leave my part specifically with a a a, a thought experiment, which is as much as I hate to, to say it, imagine Meta actually builds a world that I can log into with an Oculus, right? Where <laughs> Exactly. That's my reaction too. But will, will companies start sponsoring events in that universe? Like would, would salespeople meet in virtual conference rooms to sell a product? And I know I'm sounding a lot like a 1970s reporter predicting the internet, but this is the point we're at right now. There's there's a lot of space for innovation and, and the room for every department in a traditional company to undergo massive shifts to account for spending and consumption habits of citizens and employees of businesses they're selling to. I think it's just it's 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 a very nice thought experiment and it's a very, it's a big and massive point of curiosity for me to just see where this is all going to go of like how what's Coke going to do if Web three actually turns into a rocket ship rocket ship and kicks off what's uh, what is Coke is going Ford- to do if Web3 turns? What are you going to do? Can you sell me digital bottles of Coke? Exactly. Like, is it just going to be ads? Is it are they going to be, you know, it'll be some concert series presented by Coca-Cola. So for a lot of people, Probably. it's not going to be a massive shift to how they typically operate, right? Because yeah. how are you going to simulate drinking Coke? Exactly. Like, especially like, this, this applies to kind of everything in the F&B industry. The only, the only company that, actually is a little bit different in this is Red Bull because Red Bull just uses their energy drinks to fund everything else, but there are concerts, there's events, there's all that type of stuff. And I think 
that's the business model that no, but, but that's true of any like sugar water business, like Pepsi, Coke, Snapple, whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, who who are the executives that get elevated to the very top? It's the marketing people. Those are the people who true. wind up CEO because they're the ones who move the needle for the company. Exactly. It's all about marketing. But, it's all about selling it. Yeah. Because the product hasn't changed in 900 years. So what do I, you know, like occasionally it's yeah. a new flavor, but nothing explodes to the point where it becomes the number one drink in America. And, you know, it's still edge cases here and there. But I, w- I want to make one more comment on the nature of remote work and the pandemic and what all that did. But um, mm-hmm. so partially remote work is kind of universal in nature now. And right. the way that is, the way that works is like every business in theory is tapping into the same labor pool. But recently I saw this tweet that kind of implies that there may be sort of a dividing line in terms of the quality of talent. So these companies were not named in the tweet, but there's two payments companies, okay? Both startups, both pretty big. Um, clearly they're competitors. And uh, this, this may seem like anecdotal evidence, but I do think it's worth mentioning. So one of the companies has an in-person workforce, entirely in-person, uh, all in the same office kind of thing. And then the other one is like basically substantially remote, almost all remote. So someone who happens to be a client um, of the latter company, the remote company, mentioned that they had made a number of mistakes that caused basically a substantial loss of business and a, a substantial loss of potential earnings. So this client made it clear that because of these mistakes that um, you know it, they found it unacceptable and they want to switch uh, to the competitor. So the implication and the theory here is that the companies that are remote first tend to attract lower quality workers. Now that's the theory. I'm not I'm not I'm not defending that statement. That's just the theory. Specifically, you know, workers who are not willing to put in long hours and create truly amazing products. So the idea is like, if, if you require a mediocre effort, you're going to get mediocre workers and they're going to produce a mediocre product. And therefore you will be at best a mediocre company. Um, now of these two companies, the company with everyone in person had actually, you know, well, it started at roughly the same time, the two companies, but the ones with the in-person staff kind of accelerated their growth a little sooner than the remote first company. So they're implying that hiring a remote worker is kind of showing a preference for hiring the lazy. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say the inept, but say the lazy and the less driven. So I have personal mm. experiences that just don't confirm that theory, right? Like I realize yeah. that my evidence is pretty much as anecdotal as the person who first suggested the idea in the tweet. So I'm interested in seeing some more studies confirming one or the other, but my experiences are, are a little different because I have seen entirely remote companies actually do quite well. Yeah, my, my understanding of it, I remember seeing this one article where surprisingly it doesn't really have to do with startups or anything, but it does have to do with the nature of being remote versus in person is um, Jerry Seinfeld uh, basically wrote an op-ed in the New York Times defending uh, an article, d- defending um, New York from all those articles that have basically been saying New York City's dead, everyone's moving to Miami, that's it, that's the end of NYC. Um, he basically said that when he was kind of up and coming in the industry, how he wouldn't have been he wouldn't have been able to do any of this stuff if he was in you know wherever he was at the time he had to go to a place where he was surrounded by an environment of like-minded people mm-hmm. so i see the appeal of that you you if 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 you know you're hustling you're you're pursuing multiple side projects building things having multiple streams of income it's great to be surrounded by all of that um but i i do see how that you know if you do want to stick in a remote um that that doesn't really translate into the way you know engineers work or way different people in different trades work because the minute you go remote people you know just like i mentioned earlier on 
would like to spin themselves up in their own environments, their own settings, and that maybe boosts productivity, maybe lessens it. Or the the realization that I had that I don't think I I completed the thought on that earlier in the episode, but um, rather than you know working from eight a.m. to eight p.m. and and you know pretty much burning myself out all the, all the time, I noticed that you know I'm most productive in bursts of work. So I'll take an hour to get everything I need to do done. Maybe go around, grab some lunch, meet up with a, a friend. But I, you know, at night I come back two to three hours bursts of work, and then that's it. That's the end of my day, and I get way more than I do done. Um, and that you know is fine if it's if it's remote. But then, yeah. like I see, I, I see where, you know, especially from a manager's perspective who's existed around the before the pandemic, you could say that you know, remote people aren't really doing a nine to five, meaning they're doing a worse job. But I do agree that, you know, I think both you and I have personal experience that don't confirm that theory. Look, there are a couple of facts that I've seen over the course of the pandemic that are hard to refute, no matter what side of the argument you're on. First of all, like people who simply could not be present in California or New York suddenly had the option of being a valued member of a startup, right? And second, beyond just geography, there are people who would simply be unable to work in a permanent position outside of their home physically. Um, so if you're caring for an elderly family member or a child with special needs or something along those lines, you need to be you know, available immediately in case something were to happen. And that reason alone keeps them out of the workforce. And they end up on some government subsistence program or surviving off their spouse or spouse and basically throwing their skill set away, whereas remote work allows them to actually be you know, a functional member of, you know, the labor force. So okay. it's hard to discount the importance and, and, and what that means to people. And then third, wanting a better quality of life is an idea that some people correlate with laziness. I, I will admit, I used to be one of those people and I learned otherwise when I had no quality of life in an investment bank, but, you know, I, I'm not a believer in that correlation, but, you know, I, I have seen one friend after the next quit high pressure jobs in finance to go start a bakery or a coffee shop or uh, become a farmer in one case uh, or some other job that you would not think somebody who has a CPA or an MBA or both would ever take. And sometimes they end up going on to make a much better living for themselves doing those activities because you know they're the equity owner and they own the business and they're the ones growing it and, and realizing the economic gains. And they do that while being able to while while being able to sleep eight hours a night, and while being able to spend more time with their family, which is something that was mm -hmm. virtually inconceivable when they were stuck at their nine to five office job, being worked like a slave, right? Exactly. Yeah. So these are all. I mean, giving people these perks definitely gives them more of an incentive to work and less of an incentive to drop out of the labor force. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also healthier for the economy as a whole, especially the technology sector, because you know having an, an infinite shortage of labor isn't really good for a growing tech sector, no matter how you spin that. You know, it, it's not in anybody's exactly. favor. Um, yeah, there's always going to be demand for tech, and you know those companies are going to pop up. There's going to be demand for resources and, and people power, and yeah. when that's not met, that's just a recipe for disaster, really. Yeah. And, you know, it causes this, you know, like we said earlier, the massive jump in, in uh, uh, the value of the labor. In other words, the salaries that you're going to pay to acquire them. And mm -hmm. oh, by the way, that's that's another thing uh, that's really changed with the pandemic that most people have not really uh, considered. So there's the matter of inflation, right? right I mean, right. the inflation we're seeing right now, the last print as of this recording was around 7.5% uh, annual inflation, which is really high by historical standards because we haven't seen anything like this since the 40s. 
Sorry, sorry, sorry. Since wow. 40 years ago, not the 40s. <laughs> Um, so about 40 years ago was kind of the end of the stagflation era, the inflationary era of the seventies that crept into the eighties, um, and finally ended when, you know, Volcker put his foot down, but that's a separate podcast. So just like this isn't a crypto podcast, this is also not an economics podcast, but I think it's important just to give a little context. So the conventional definition of inflation or what they would teach you at school is a, a general sustained increase in prices across the board. That's how inflation is defined. Um, th there is a somewhat of a fringe definition where the definition of inflation kind of relates directly to the money supply. So inflation there is defined as the creation of money. Mm -hmm. Now, the former is a more Keynesian definition. The latter is a more Austrian definition. So if you increase the, the, the supply of money, even without seeing an immediate effect on prices, that's still referred to as inflation because inflation is the physical act of creating more money. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but we are seeing the, the, the former definition of inflation, which is a general increases in prices across the board, which if you've been alive anywhere in the last 12 months, you can definitely confirm with your own experiences. Um, now, those two definitions are, are very correlated because you know inflation, if you want to quote Milton Friedman, is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And otherwise, there is no such thing as a sustained increase in prices across the board without an increase in the money supply. That is impossible. Um, so, and that correlation, obviously for historical reasons, and even with a lot of data is close enough to imply causation. So it, for those who are unaware, the U S government basically created roughly a quarter of all the U S dollars in existence over the last 24 months, um, in response to, uh, what occurred, you know, well, COVID, right. All the stimulus bills that came in line with COVID see when, when the government legislates this massive hand away for whatever trillion dollars, where do you think that money comes from? You know, it wasn't part of the budget because the budget is set as of October of the last year, and obviously nobody was planning for COVID. Um, so what happens is uh, the, the the government has to float debt in the public markets. You know, they issue bonds in order to finance government spending, and when you issue bonds, basically it goes to all these banks and private holders. But most of the people are only buying those bonds because they can turn around and sell it right to the Fed, because they do you know quantitative easing, which is you know injecting cash into the financial system. And the way they do that is by creating money to buy US debt. So, and again, this is the subject of a, it could be the subject of a whole other podcast, like, you know, the, the economic theory and how the Fed has, you know, seen mission creep over its hundred something year existence. But anyhow, so that's how the US government basically wills dollars into existence. Um, and because of that massive increase in the money supply, we're now seeing 7.5% annual inflation, which again, the highest since the 80s. Now, this one component of inflation is definitely wage inflation. So the average earnings of certain people in certain segments of society have definitely gone up. Um, you know, tech is obviously no exception to the rule, but there are non-monetary causes for an increase in, price, in prices. Uh, if that's how you want to define inflation, then yes, there are non-monetary uh, reasons behind some of the inflation that we're seeing. Uh, for example, remember a little while ago, we did an episode on the lack of visa availability and the super long wait lists for like consulate interviews in India, Pakistan, China, yeah. and all these other countries with large numbers of engineers uh, who are kind of in a backlog waiting to enter the US and to work in the US, specifically in the tech sector. Um, you know, that massive backlog means that there is less available labor in the United States um, for software engineering purposes. And the shortage obviously becomes higher salaries and nobody will dispute the salaries have absolutely soared over the last two years uh, for, for engineers. Exactly. 
but you know, wage inflation, you know, like I said, it's a component of the overall inflationary metrics that we're all looking at today. Um, by the way, th- there was an ad a little while ago. I was making the rounds on Twitter. Basically, if a, a Panda Express branch manager uh, can now make around seventy thousand dollars a year, which, by the way, was more than I made as my first year in investment banking, and that was with, like with a master's degree. Wow. Yeah. So you know what? We should probably do an episode on like what's happened to the labor market and, and inflation specifically, and how that plays into tech because I feel like we have a lot of content there. But just so you know, too. going back to the point, companies today, startups today, are going to have to navigate high inflation as just another macro risk for them. Yeah. So, what happens at a print of ten percent, of twelve percent, fifteen percent? It's not inconceivable that we get there. Most people think that's crazy, but then again, most people thought it was crazy that we'd be at seven point five percent just a year ago. So Biden took office; it was around one point four percent, and I'm using that fact. Biden took office just as a uh, uh, you know, a chronological yardstick, uh, and not really to imply any correlation between the current political regime and, and inflation. But it's it's come up quite a bit, and it is not impossible that would come up some more. So I'll, I'll leave with this thought. So the last time inflation was this high, which was between seven and a half and like around eleven percent, um, the U.S. federal funds rate was kicked up to somewhere between like fifteen and eighteen percent. Just to try to try to contain it. That's what Paul Volcker did, and it required giant cojones to do it because it's just absolutely politically toxic. Um, you know, it just brought the economy to a screeching halt, but also reined in inflation, mm-hmm. and it did so pretty well because you know the, his, the inflation during the rest of the eighties was pretty contained. Um, so for the first time since the eighties, you know, we we're right back to having to deal with that as a macro factor. And the thing is, you did not have the startups back then that you have today, just in terms of quantity and quality and the different sectors that exist. Mm -hmm. So we'll see how various founders decide to tackle it and what sort of effects it ends up having on the business in the long term. We've definitely seen what's what's happened to valuations in the last couple of years. And there is absolutely a monetary component there because let's be honest, if rates weren't at zero while money was being printed like there's no tomorrow, then we likely would not have seen a lot of those valuations. Still would have crept up, but not to the degree that they did. But um, what is implied now is that in order to rein in inflation and bring it back to the kind of two-ish percent that it was at over the long term, you would have to basically jack up the federal funds rate over what the annual inflation rate is today. And if you know anything about the US monetary system, there are serious questions as to whether the financial system can even survive with a federal funds rate of 10%. Mm-hmm. So, and for, for reference, we're like around zero now, and we have been basically since 2008 with a short period of a little higher into a little higher interest rates in 2018. Um, and even that, you know, kind of put a damper on the market quite a bit. So, yeah, I think, it's, I don't it's know how very... this is going to play out, but we'll see. Yeah. I think it's a very interesting situation to be to be caught in simply because you know you 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 know you, you see where you're headed it is a problem all the solutions you don't know if you like the solutions that you need to patch onto the ship that's sinking um are going to do more damage to the ship so it's just do you go with lesser of two evils do you go with you know i i think that's very surprising because like even I'm starting to get the idea of why valuations, at least for companies my size, of like abstract size and even larger or 
as ridiculous as they are because you know going after such high demand workers you need to you need to put out very very interesting salaries that you haven't seen before and yep. we had a talk with one of our investors basically and the main thing that he told us is that you got to get used to it you know you, you have inflation yep. coming up people are in demand it's just the price you got to pay and now their their price tags are a bit higher um but i think you know it's 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 a very interesting thing to keep to to keep in mind as you navigate growing a company now does that mean you like founders are just going to have to expect to be more diluted is there um more emphasis on equity that's going to be put up that's that's like up in the air right now but i still say that it's not a discouragement from starting a company and building something awesome honestly um no because it is a weird speaking the best mm-hmm. asset to hold during periods of high inflation was just shares in really good companies, right? Yeah. So exactly. So so it's 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 a difficult, it's a very difficult and rough and patchy seas to navigate, but it's just gonna leave you with more more knowledge, more wisdom, and more battle scars, I guess. So you can kind of wear as badges of honor. Yeah. But yeah. And until then, you just stay at home, have your older brother cook. Orange chicken, yeah. fry orange chicken. Wow, <laughs> I haven't Fun. done that in a long time. True, you you make great orange chicken, by the way. Like I, I know, I think, right? And I don't use anywhere near as much grease or sugar or anything. Yeah, yeah, like those those were not like we 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 like shallow fried them. We didn't even deep fry them. I still remember yeah. the way you set everything up. It was I I I I, I could definitely go for some right now. So you said it, awesome. and I'm hoping this uh, this uh, super sensitive mic didn't kind of pick up my stomach growling. <laughs> same, same. It's 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 uh, creeping up on lunchtime right now as well. So yeah. I might do that, then finish that large cloud migration I was talking about. But it's funny you say this. I I don't want to touch it or move it because it's going to make a lot of sound. But I have this massive bag of 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 um, those tiny pretzels. <laughs> Yeah. Have you heard? So just that. Yeah, let's like, not blow out juice. the listeners' eardrums in their cars as they go to work because <laughs> they can't exactly. work them out. Anyhow. Oh yeah. Right, I gotta, I gotta roll. Likewise, likewise. So see you next week. Later.